Section 3 of The Begum's Fortune by Jules Verne, translated by W. H. G. Kingston. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3 Effect of an Item of News. On entering the hall, where the fourth meeting of the Hygienic Conference was being held, Dr. Saracen was conscious that he was received with unusual tokens of respect. The Right Honourable Lord Glandover, the President and Chairman of the Assembly, had not hitherto condescended to appear conscious of the existence of the French doctor. This nobleman was an august personage, whose part it was to declare the conference open or closed, and, from a list placed before him, to call upon the various speakers who were to address the meeting. He habitually carried his right hand in the breast of his button coat, not that it had received an injury and needed support, but only because it was usual among English sculptors to represent statesmen in this inconvenient attitude. His pale smooth face, marked with red blotches, and surmounted by a wig of light hair, brushed high on a forehead which clearly belonged to an empty pate, possessed an aspect of ludicrous stiffness and foolish gravity. Lord Glandover might have been made of wood or pasteboard, so stiff and unnatural were all his movements. His very eyes appeared to turn beneath their brows by intermittent jerks, like those of a doll or puppet. The notice hitherto bestowed on Dr. Saracen by Lord Glandover had amounted to no more than a slight and patronizing bow. It seemed to say, "'Good morning, poor man. You are one of those who support your insignificant existence by making insignificant experiments with insignificant machines. How condescending I am to notice being so far beneath me in the scale of creation. You may sit down, poor man.' beneath the shadow of my nobility. But on the present occasion, Lord Glandover smiled most graciously upon Dr. Saracen as he entered, and even carried his courtesy so far as to invite him by a sign to be seated at his right hand. The other members of the conference all rose when he appeared on the platform. Considerably astonished by a reception so flattering, Dr. Saracen took the chair offered to him, concluding that, on further consideration, his invention had been found of much greater importance than his scientific brethren had at first supposed. But this illusion vanished when Lord Glandover, leaning towards him with a spinal contortion of his body, whispered in his ear, "'I understand that you are a man of very considerable property.' They tell me you are worth twenty-one million pounds sterling. This was said almost in a tone of reproach, as though his lordship felt aggrieved at having lightly treated the equivalent in flesh and blood of a sum of money so vast. His look and tone seemed to say, Why was I not made aware of this? It really is unfair to expose one to the awkwardness of making such mistakes. Dr. Saracen, who could not in conscience have said he was worth a penny more than he had been at the last meeting, was wondering how the news should have already become known, when Dr. Ovidius of Berlin, 
who sat next to him, said with a false and faint smile, "'Why, Saracen, you are as great a man as any of the Rothschilds, so the Daily Telegraph makes out. Let me congratulate you.' He handed the doctor a copy of the paper of Thursday. Among the items of news was to be seen the following paragraph, the composition of which plainly revealed its authorship. A monster heritage. The legitimate heir to the fortune of the late Begum Gogul has at length been discovered, thanks to the indefatigable researches of Messrs. Billows Green and Sharp Solicitors, 94 Southampton Row, London. The fortunate possessor of twenty-one million pounds sterling, now deposited in the Bank of England, is a Frenchman, Dr. Saracen, whose able paper, communicated at the Brighton Scientific Conference, was reported in this journal three days ago. By dint of a course of strenuous efforts, and amid difficulties and adventures forming in themselves a perfect romance, Mr. Sharp has succeeded in proving indisputably that Dr. Saracen is the sole living descendant of Jean-Jacques Langeville, the second husband of the Begum Gogol. This soldier of fortune was, it appears, a native of the town of Bardeluc in France. A few matters of form only required to be gone through in order to place Dr. Saracen in full possession of his fortune. A petition to that effect has been filed in Chancery. Very remarkable is the chain of circumstance by which the treasure accumulated by a long line of Indian rajahs is laid at the feet of a French physician. The fickle goddess might have exhibited the indiscretion she so frequently displays in the disposal of her gifts, but on this occasion she has, we are glad to say, bestowed this prodigious fortune on one who will not fail to make a good use of his wealth. Oddly enough, as many might think, Dr. Saracen was vexed to see his news made public. He not only foresaw the many annoyances it would entail upon him, he also felt humbled by the importance people seemed to attach to the event. He, himself personally, appeared to dwindle into insignificance before the imposing figures which denoted his capital. He was inly conscious that his own personal merits, and all he had ever accomplished, were already, even in the eyes of those who knew him best, sunk in this ocean of gold and silver. His friends no longer saw in him the enthusiastic experimentalist, the ingenious inventor, the acute philosopher. They only saw the great millionaire. Had he been a hump-backed dwarf, an ignorant hottentot, the lowest specimen of humanity, instead of one of its most intelligent representatives, his value would have been the same as Lord Glandover had expressed it. He was worth, henceforth, just twenty-one million pounds, no more and no less. This idea sickened him, and the crowd of members, staring with a searching, if not a scientific, curiosity, to see how a millionaire looked, remarked with surprise that a shade of melancholy gathered on the countenance under examination. This, however, was only a passing weakness. 
the magnitude of the object to which he had resolved to dedicate his unexpected fortune rose suddenly before him and his serenity was restored he waited until dr stevenson of glasgow had finished reading a paper on the education of young idiots and then requested leave to make a communication it was instantly granted by lord glandover although the name of dr ovidius stood next on the list by the marked tone of his voice he indicated that he would have done so had the whole conference objected or had all the learned men in europe protested with one accord against such a piece of favoritism gentlemen said dr saracen it was my intention to wait for a few days before informing you of the singular chance which has befallen me and of the happy consequences which may result to science from this event but the fact having become public it would seem mere affectation were i now to delay speaking of it and placing it in its proper light yes gentlemen it is true that a large sum of money a sum amounting to many millions now deposited in the bank of england appears to be legally my property need i tell you that such being the case i consider myself simply as a steward entrusted with this wealth for the use and benefit of science immense sensation this treasure belongs not to me but to humanity to progress great commotion exclamations applause the whole assembly electrified by this announcement rise en masse do not applaud me gentlemen i know not one man of science worthy of the name who in my place would not do what it is my desire to do it is possible that some may attribute to me motives of vanity and self-love in this matter rather than of genuine devotedness no no it matters little let us look to the results i declare then definitively and without reservation that the twenty-one million pounds placed in my hands belongs not to me but to science will you gentlemen undertake the management and distribution of it i have not sufficient confidence in my own knowledge to undertake the sole disposal of such a sum i appoint you as trustees you yourselves shall decide on the best means of employing all the treasure tumultuous pause great excitement general enthusiasm the whole assembly stood up some members in the fever of excitement mounted on the table professor turnbull of glasgow appeared on the verge of apoplexy dr Sicogna of naples was ready to choke lord glandover alone maintained the serene and dignified composure befitting his rank he was perfectly convinced that dr saracen intended the whole thing as a pleasant jest without the smallest intention of actually carrying out so extravagant a scheme when quiet was in some measure restored the speaker continued if i may be permitted to suggest what it would be easy to develop and bring to perfection i would beg to propose the following plan 
the assembly recovering its composure listened with reverential attention gentlemen among the many causes of the sickness misery and death which surround us is one to which i think it reasonable to attach great importance and that is the deplorable sanitary conditions under which the greater part of mankind exists multitudes are massed together in towns and in dwellings where they are often deprived of light and air the two elements most necessary to life these agglomerations of humanity become the hotbeds of fever and infection and even those who escape death are tainted with disease they are feeble and useless members of society which thereby suffers great and serious loss instead of deriving priceless advantage from their healthful and vigorous labor why gentlemen should we not in an effort to remedy this sore evil try the most powerful of all means of persuasion that of example why should we not by uniting the powers of our minds produce the plan of a model city based upon strictly scientific principles cries of hair hair why should we not afterwards devote our capital to the erection of such a city and then present it to the world as a practical illustration of what all cities ought to be hear hear and thunders of applause the members in transports of admiration shook hands and congratulated each other then surrounding dr saracen they seized upon his chair raised him up and bore him triumphantly round the hall gentlemen continued the doctor on being permitted to resume his place to this city which every one of us can already picture in imagination and which may shortly become a reality to this city of health and happiness we will call universal attention by descriptions translated into all the languages of the earth we will invite visitors from every nation we will offer it as a home and refuge for honest families forced to emigrate from overpopulated countries those unfortunate people also who are driven into exile by foreign conquest can you wonder gentlemen that i think of them will find with us employment for their activity and scope for their intelligence while they will enrich our colony by their moral virtue and intellectual strength possessions of far higher value than gold or precious stones we will found great colleges where youth will be trained and educated in principles based on the truest wisdom so as to develop and justly balance their moral physical and intellectual faculties thus preparing future generations of strong and virtuous men no language can describe the tumult of enthusiasm which followed this communication for at least a quarter of an hour the hall resounded with a storm of cheering and hurrahs dr saracen sat down and lord glandover once more leaning towards him murmured in his ear with a knowing wink not a bad speculation that 
what a revenue you would draw from the tolls eh the thing would be sure to succeed provided it were well started and backed up by influential names why all our convalescents and valetudinarians would be for settling there at once be sure that you put down my name for a good building lot doctor poor dr saracen was quite mortified by this determination to attribute his actions to a covetous motive and was about to reply to his lordship when he heard the vice-president move a vote of thanks to the author of the philanthropic proposal just submitted to the assembly it would he said be to the eternal honor of the brighton conference that an idea so sublime had been originated there it was an idea which nothing short of the most exalted benevolence and the rarest generosity could have conceived and yet now that the idea had been suggested it seemed almost a wonder that it had never before occurred to any one millions had been lavished on senseless wars vast capitals squandered in foolish speculations how infinitely better spent they might have been in the furtherance of such a scheme as this the speaker in conclusion proposed that in honour of its founder the new city should receive the name of saracena this motion would have been carried by acclamation but dr saracen interposed no said he my name has nothing whatever to do with this scheme neither let us bestow on the future city a fancy name derived from greek or latin such as is often invented and gives an air of affectation and peculiarity to whatever bears it it will be the city of welfare and comfort it will be named after my country let us call it frankville everyone agreed to gratify dr saracen in this by acceding to his choice and the first step was thus taken towards the founding of the city the meeting then proceeded to the discussion of other points and to this practical occupation so unlike those to which it was usually devoted we will leave it while we follow the wandering fortunes of the paragraph published in the daily telegraph copied word for word by all the newspapers the information contained in this little paragraph was soon blazed abroad over every county in England. In the whole gazette, it figured at the top of the second page in a copy of that modest journal, which on the 1st of November arrived at Rotterdam on board the three-masted collier Queen Mary. The active scissors of the editor of the Belgian Echo pounced upon it at once, it was speedily translated into Flemish, the language of Coop and Potter, and on the wings of steam it reached the Bremen Chronicle on the 2nd of November. In that paper our bit of news next appeared, the same in substance, but clothed in a garb of German, the artful editor adding in parenthesis, from our Brighton correspondent. The anecdote, now thoroughly Germanized, reached the office of the editor of the Northern Gazette, and that great man gave it a place in the second column of his third page. On the evening of the 3rd of November, after passing through these various transformations, it made its entrance between the fat 
hands of a stout serving-man into the study of Professor Schultz of the University of Jena. High as this personage stood in the scale of humanity, he presented nothing remarkable to the eye of a stranger. He was a man of five or six and forty, strongly built, his square shoulders denoting a robust constitution. His forehead was bald, the little hair remaining on his temples and behind his head suggested the idea that they consisted of threads of tow. His eyes were blue, that vague blue which never betrays a thought. Professor Schultz had a large mouth, garnished with a double row of formidable teeth which would never drop their prey. Thin lips closed over them, whose principal employment was to keep note of the words which passed between them. The general appearance of the professor was decidedly unpleasant to others, but he himself was evidently perfectly satisfied with it. On hearing his servant enter, he raised his eyes to a very pretty clock over the mantelpiece, which looked out of place among a number of vulgar articles around it, and said in a quick, rough voice, Six fifty-five. The post comes in at six-thirty. You bring my letters too late by twenty-five minutes. The next time they are not on my table at six-thirty, you quit my service. Will you please to dine now, sir? asked the man as he withdrew. It is now six-fifty-five, and I dine at seven. You have been here for three weeks, and you know that. Recollect that I never change an hour and never repeat an order. The professor laid his newspaper on the table and went on writing a treatise, which was to appear next day in Physiological Records, a periodical to which he contributed. We may be permitted to state that this treatise was entitled why are all Frenchmen affected by different degrees of hereditary degeneracy? As the professor pursued his task, his dinner, consisting of a large dish of sausages and cabbage, flanked by a huge flagon of beer, was carefully placed on a round table near the fire. He laid aside his pen in order to partake of this repast, which he did with greater appearance of enjoyment than might have been expected from so grave an individual. Then he rang for coffee, lighted his pipe, and resumed his labors. It was after midnight when he signed his name on the last page, and retired at once to his bedroom to enjoy a well-earned repose. Not till he was in his bed did he take his paper from its cover and begin to read before going to sleep. Just as the professor was becoming drowsy, his eye was caught by a foreign name, that of Langeval, in the paragraph relating to the monster heritage. He tried to call to mind clearly the vague recollections to which this name gave rise. After a few minutes vainly devoted to efforts of memory, he threw away the journal, blew out his candle, and loud snores quickly gave notice that he slept by a physiological phenomenon which he himself had studied and explained at great length. This name of Langeval followed Dr. Schultz even in his dreams. The consequence was that on awaking next morning he found himself mechanically repeating it. All at once, just as he was going to look at his watch, 
A sudden light broke upon him. Snatching up the newspaper at the foot of his bed, he read again and again, with his hand pressed on his forehead, the paragraph which he had all but missed seeing the night before. The light was evidently spreading to his brain, for without waiting to put on his flowered dressing gown, he hurried to the fireplace, took a small miniature portrait from the wall by the mirror, and turning it round, passed his sleeve over the dusty pasteboard at the back. The professor was right. Behind the picture he read the following words, traced in faded ink. Teresa Schultz, Ina Gaborin, Langeville, which means Teresa Schultz, whose maiden name was Langeville. That evening the professor was in the express train on his way to London. End of section three.